This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The chief of naval operations would cut ships from the Navy fleet to free up money for investing in the future fleet. Admiral Michael Gilday says new submarines, a frigate, and a new destroyer will be online by 2025. You can see my exclusive conversation about the future of the fleet with Admiral Gilday Sunday morning on Government Matters. The Defense Department will follow five tenets of responsible behavior in space, according to the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. He'll assign the commander of Space Command, General Jim Dickinson, to make recommendations to him about executing on the five tenants. Breaking Defense reports the five include limiting debris in space and communications about safety. The Navy's reviewing results from the second shock test of the USS Gerald R. Ford. The second test was supposed to be July 1st, but technical problems delayed the test until last Friday. Defense News reports it's the second of three tests for the ship. The nomination of Frank Kendall to become Secretary of the Air Force is moving again after Senator Elizabeth Warren took off her hold on his nomination. One of his new jobs, if the Senate confirms him, could be to shape the entire Defense Department's space enterprise. Matt Donovan's director of the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Research Center. He's former Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness and former Undersecretary of the Air Force, writing about U.S. military space power in defense news. Matt, welcome. It's good to see you again. Um, that concept that the Air Force Secretary should lead the entire space enterprise, what are the implications for the Air Force and the Space Force the way it exists today? Matt, welcome. It's really great to see you again. It's great to be back. You know, although the U.S. Space Force is still in its infancy, it's approaching its uh, second birthday. One of the reasons Congress created it was to consolidate and align all our military space capabilities into a single organization under a single independent space commander in order to maximize their effectiveness. This consolidation is off to a slow start for a host of reasons, not, which, uh, not least of which are parochial service or agency attitudes. In fact, some of the defense committee members on the Hill have been grousing about the space acquisition side of the issue where they are not yet seeing strong evidence of this consolidation taking hold. There are dozens of disparate organizations that share in space equities and research development and acquisition operation. This isn't allowing the Space Force to achieve full effectiveness and efficiencies in the development of space capabilities, the expenditure of funds, or in conducting integrated space operations. This is, you're, what you're getting at here is a challenge that doesn't just have to do with the Air Force and Space Force. It has to do with the Defense Department in general since 1947. Frank has been in the building, knows his way around it very well, but that inertia and that turf power, that battle that the services fight, offices fight with each other within services and so on is tremendously powerful. How does one break that, especially in something that, it is, that, that is as new as space, the space enterprise and the space force in particular, Matt? Well, Francis, with the advent of a new armed service, the space force to deal with the new warfighting domain of space, 
It's time for a serious and full body roles and missions review across the Department of Defense. It's only through such an effort like this that roles and responsibilities can be clarified between the services so we can optimize America's military for the 21st century threat. The Key West Agreement, which emerged from the Truman administration in 1948 after the National Security Act of 1947 created the Department of the Air Force, it was last modified by the Eisenhower administration in 1954. No fundamental changes to the definition of the functions of the armed services and the Joint Chiefs of Staff has occurred since that time. So with the advent of advanced technology, a new warfighting domain and aggressive behavior by potential adversaries, we need this to fire on all of cylinders. So in this piece, I'm, I'm a history guy. I love reading history and World War II history uh, is uh, an area of new interest to me. You reference a battle here that I hadn't gotten to yet. Why is this the example that you cited in this defense news piece, Matt, about the, the prospect that the situation that we're discussing presents? Well, you know, the first battle of Kazarine Pass was the very first engagement, major engagement by America forces in World War II. And, uh, we, you know, we had a lack of readiness. We had a lack of leadership experience in leading in battle. And, uh, and we had those sort of same parochial attitudes towards the new uh, air forces, air power, if you will, uh, where it was used as an extension of artillery for army and they assigned uh, indigenous capabilities to uh, the land force units. Uh, and it was to the detriment and it had disastrous results because they weren't able to uh, gain and maintain air superiority, which we know today is a prerequisite to uh, any warfighting operations, successful anyway. Uh, so uh, I think it really needs to be applied to the uh, space power uh, domain as well, if you think about it, because we'll always have limited space assets and they need to be uh, command and controlled by an independent space commander that can maximize their effectiveness uh, by centrally controlling them. You write it this way, the Secretary of the Air Force through the Chief of Space Operations must act as the chief architect for the Department of Defense's space enterprise to ensure all DOD military space capabilities are aligned and synchronized. Is that alignment and synchronicity possible if the scenario that you outlined doesn't happen, Matt? Well, I, I think it's uh, absolutely mandatory that, that we'll have to do that because, you know, space has, has you know, uh, prior to about 15, 20 years ago, it was a benign domain and it was used primarily as a, as a support force, um, you know, providing communications, navigation, that sort of thing. Um, and, and although America didn't choose to make it a warfighting domain, our adversaries have certainly gone there and... Uh, General Raymond, the Chief of Sta uh, Space Operations and uh, and the Secretary of Defense have all been talking about uh, the advent of, of this new threat. So if we don't do this, uh, I, I think that we'll just be splintered and not optimized uh, to our maximum effect. Matt Donovan, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks. Great to see you, Francis. You can find a link to Matt's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, real estate creep in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Chinese military's new target and how the Pentagon should respond. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. China's creeping up on a former U.S. airstrip as a potential military base. The Pentagon's focus on platform investments may distract it from stopping the next Chinese land grab. Craig Singleton, adjunct fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, is writing about the future of China military bases across the Indo-Pacific in foreign policy. Craig, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. At first, this doesn't sound like much. 6,000-foot runway in the Pacific Island country of Kiribati. And then when you stop and think about it, you think the Chinese didn't start with very much land territory in the South China Sea, and now they've got a full-blown installation there. Are we looking at the same prospect here, Craig? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I think so much of the current conversation around China's regional aims has really centered understandably on China's interests vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. It's a theme that featured really prominently uh, during the Chinese Communist Party's recent centennial. And it really sits at the core of what the Chinese leader Xi Jinping has referred to as the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. That said, we all know uh, from China's adventurism in the South China Sea that Beijing is hardly content to limit its military interest to the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea. And it's really in the process of building out this network and this new military architecture, not only across the Indo-Pacific and the South Pacific, but in the Middle East and Africa as well. You compare the, the possibilities in Kiribati to what uh, the Chinese have done in Djibouti. You write, uh, China there leveraged a combination of deft, deft diplomacy, elite capture, and strategically timed investments. What's the role for the United States to maybe take that combination and do its own twist on it or something? Because uh, it, the Djiboutians are starting to understand that maybe they didn't get such a great deal in 2017, that maybe this is not working in their best interests. How do we leverage that worldview and turn it to our advantage? Absolutely. I would say that we've seen this movie before, and Djibouti is a great example. To date, that is China's only overseas military uh, installation that's beyond its current near uh, border, near periphery. And I think one of the things we need to realize is that we have a good sense of the countries that China is targeting as part of this plan. Last year in 2020, the Department of Defense issued a, a list of cities, everything ranging from parts of the South Pacific to Pakistan, to the UAE, Burma, uh, Tanzania, Djibouti, and other parts of West Africa, where they say China is hunting for these bases. And the benefit for the United States is we already know where China's looking. What we really need to do now, though, is get organized and to really sit back as a country, as a government, and say, where is our comparative advantage? And where are our levers of power and influence in each of these different countries? And where, what can we actually do to sort of derail or undermine China's intentions and plans uh, to get these military installations, and in some cases, um, commercial port installations that can be um, redeveloped to have military applications. So on the positive side, we have a good sense of the Chinese blueprint. What we need to do on our side, though, is influence the host country receptivity to Chinese basing overtures. And on that front, we do have a lot of advantages. You write in this piece about the history that we have with Kiribati, the Battle of Tarawa, and the way that that forged a relationship between the two countries. But you point this out, Kiribati received only $20,000 in USAID last year, down from 1.3 million in 2004. China maintains a large fully staffed embassy on the island. The closest US diplomat is stationed in Fiji, more than 1,300 miles away. The word that I take out of that is presence. How do we be everywhere? How do we maintain presence everywhere that China wants to be? 
I think that's part of the, the deterrence trap with China is if we convince ourselves we need to be everywhere, then we're almost nowhere. What's great about the China basing strategy is because it's limited to about seven to 10 locations, we can really focus our efforts on very tailored campaigns to influence those host countries and those host governments to sort of demur China's overtures. And in some cases, we don't need to go in as the United States and sort of compete with China dollar for dollar. But what we do need to do is be really cognizant of what China is offering. Is the United States in a position to offer a better port modernization deal? Is the United States or its, its partner countries in a position to refurbish an airport or an airstrip and to do so in a way that's really transparent? One of the things that's really important for the United States to keep in mind is that as we think about pushing back on China's Belt and Road Initiative, one of the key things that the United States is pushing is obviously transparency. And in some cases, it's understandable that host governments will choose the Chinese option, whether because it's a lower cost or there are, there are less strings attached. But even in those situations, the United States can help them understand what they're getting into. And part of that, just like in the case of Djibouti, is really helping them dig into the weeds of some of these port agreements and port uh, negotiations to understand is there any language here that would allow China to militarize this facility and to station foreign troops on my soil? And in a lot of cases, I think foreign countries would be very concerned to see that sort of language or those sorts of loopholes and would seek to close them. That sort of a very small, low cost administrative um, approach from the United States doesn't require massive U.S. footprints around the country, but it does require enhanced diplomatic outreach to these countries. Craig Singleton, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. you can find a link to Craig's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, billionaires trying to beat each other into space isn't the only space race on the planet. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the space race among great power competitors. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back. Russia's making some major moves in the new space race. It will spend up to $20 billion on space by 2026 to keep pace with China and the United States. Caitlin Johnson's deputy director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, welcome back. It is good to see you again. We talk about China all the time in terms of great power competition. The national defense strategy specifies China and Russia we forget, don't we, sometimes that Russia actually beat us into space in the 1950s. They certainly did. When you talk about the space race uh, of the Cold War, you can say, well, did we win or Russia? Yes, we put boots on the moon first, but they sent the first active satellite into orbit. What does that mean for the way that we should think about the space race in the 21st century, given that China has also made it very clear that they want to stake a claim to not just uh, uh, bandwidth in space, but actual territory? They're headed for the moon also. They are. And they actually just signed an agreement with Russia to build a joint lunar base. Uh, we'll see how that goes. 
But, you know, when we think about Russia in the space domain, we really think about this legacy of the Soviet Union. And certainly the new Russian state is capitalizing on some of the old Soviet programs that were ongoing and a lot of the designs and, and programs that, you know, they've brought into the 21st century. What are they bringing into the 21st century, Caitlin? What are they expanding on uh, in, in terms of what they already have and the capabilities they're trying to build? Sure. So they have a uh, PNT system, just like the United States operates the GPS system. They have robust communications as well as ISR and um, satellites. So gaining intelligence and both looking at the Earth optically, but also uh, sensors in orbit, uh, missile defense satellites are and alerting missile warning satellites. Sorry, are also a big. Uh, topic of conversation when we talk about the U.S. and Russian space program. Um, but, you know, my group studies a lot of counterspace developments, and really Russia is putting a lot of its effort into not just its own space capabilities, but denying the U.S. access to our space capabilities. How does that compare to the way that we have to think about China? Is China also active in counterspace uh, operations, or are they primarily working on their own stuff? China is also doing everything as well, uh, both posturing themselves against the U.S. space advantage um, and investing in their own capabilities. Um, similar to Russia, both have used counterspace weapons uh, or counterspace capabilities to uh, protect their own systems, to deny the U.S. access to GPS or satellite communications in areas like Ukraine, the South China Sea, and Syria. I mentioned the $20 billion that uh, President Putin in Russia has uh, devoted to their space strategy. This is a 10-year strategy, so averages out to $2 billion a year. What kind of visibility or knowledge do we have about where that money will go, and, and what can we draw from what we know about that to think about Russian space trajectory moving forward, to think about where they want to go and what they want to do? Sure. So, you know, like uh, China, Russia's budget is very uh, underwrapped, and so we don't know exactly where that money will go. But if we look at what they've been investing in in the past, you know, couple years to past decade, we see big investments in civil space capabilities, uh, like their work with the United States on the International Space Station. Um, so looking towards going back to the moon, certainly, as well as military space capabilities, continuing to build out some of these constellations that we just talked about, communications, ISR, missile warning, uh, PNT, things that really enable a modern military. And, and lastly, you know, their counterspace capabilities, the ability to attack U.S. satellites, to deny our access to our space systems, what really gives the United States a competitive edge um, and taking that back, bringing, you know, leveling the playing field. You mentioned the, the Russia-China cooperation in space. Do we have any insight into whether there's any kind of knowledge transfer there, any kind of technology sharing there that would give China the ability to close the gap? Their um, quick calculation, 60 years behind Russia and the United States in space, and I wonder whether Russia is essentially helping them to try to close that timeline by sharing what they have with the Chinese. Well, whenever you have international cooperation 
on such a level that involves this kind of technology and knowledge transfer. Um, it's really a, a great way to gain insight into what the other country is doing, but also, you know, see where they are at. And Russia and China, interestingly, have prioritize different parts of their space programs and you know almost have us will have a symbiotic relationship in space i wouldn't characterize china as so far behind you know they do have um an working uh space station on orbit right now it's uh they just launched the last piece and sent up uh their astronauts to it so i think uh that relationship will build trust will yes result in some technology or knowledge transfer um but really just continue to deepen that relationship which you know has struggled in the past so we'll see how successful you know their international relationship actually ends up being caitlin johnson thanks very much as always great to have you back thanks francis don't forget if you miss an episode of government matters it's archived at govmatters.tv and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our newsletters every day, you just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. North America's largest maritime expo and conference is back in person. The Navy League Sea Airspace 2021, August 2nd through 4th at Gaylord National Harbor. You'll see speakers from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Maritime Administration, and Congress. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award 
on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess, but um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.